Welcome, welcome, bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy, and I'm devastated that I didn't receive an invite to the Manon wedding party. And I'm AJ. I must ask you, did you get an invite to the Manon wedding party? No, but I don't think many people did. It didn't look like there were a lot of guests there. No, it wasn't humming, was it? No, and there's just some, you know, random German officers sat watching the wedding party as well, which must make celebrations a little bit awkward, even before the events that happened in this episode. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think Albert should have put a sign out, or Monique, saying, private function. <laughs> yeah, and um, when I was typing up the show notes, I was like, oh, I really hope they got a refund. <laughs> exactly. Honestly, the poor Manons. They couldn't have waited until after the wedding. I don't know. But anyway, we'll get on to that. Enough of this wedding party invite nonsense. Let's claw it back. Let's try anyway. So today we are talking about the fifth episode of Secret Army, which was transmitted on the 5th of October 1977, and it was entitled Second Chance, written by James Andrew Hall and directed by Paul Annette. And is that his second episode of the series? Who? Paul Annette. Yes, because he did radishes with butter. Yes. Correct. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember the James Andrew horse. This, this is his first one or not, but I think it is. It is. Oh, knowledge. I'm getting there with my knowledge. You are. I'm impressed. So is the other one he did this series bait? He did do bait and he did Scorpion in series two. Could we have a plot summary, please, AJ? We can indeed. I like how you ask for that like it's a consonant or a vowel. <laughs> 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 All right. Second chance. Albert is worried because he is certain that the Candide is under surveillance. Meanwhile, a wounded evader named Finch finds shelter with a Dutch bargee named Hans von Brocken and his wife Lena. Finch has no wish to return to England and instead wants safe passage to Switzerland. Hans is keen to help the man, but when Natalie pays them a visit, Lifeline becomes involved. Boy, does it. So, second chance. Limited knowledge about where this was filmed. I wish I knew where the canal was. Um, I do know that the the wood scene at the start was filmed at Paul Annette's favourite place to film anything, which is the Shepperton Studios backlot, because he also directed the cult horror film The Beast Must Die there. So I remember when interviewing Paul, if he could get it back to his feature film... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) He would. But he was also very proud of his Agatha Christie um, series, Partners in Crime, for which he directed a lot of the episodes and also wrote some as well, just as he did for Secret Army. So that was the Tommy and Tuppence series in the 80s. Yeah. Do you want to know a bit more about writer James Andrew Hall? Yes, please. Good. Well... Did you know he was the Andrew Davies of his day? As I say that, I'm thinking, do you know who Andrew <laughs> Davies is? <laughs> My educated guess is that Andrew Davies is the guy who did a lot of adaptations of things like Bleak House. This reminds me that this book is actually really old. <laughs> and when I read from it and saying, oh, he was the Andrew Davies of his day. This is a previous day, Andy. <laughs> this is a previous day. I like that. So, yes. I mean, this most famous one was... The Pride and Prejudice adaptation, which was superb. Is that the one where Colin Firth is famous for jumping in the water? Yes. 
yeah, with Jennifer Ely as well. It's really, really good. And he just set the bar at a new level, Andrew Davies did with his adaptations. And I think James Andrew Hall did that back in the day, the previous day. <laughs> because James Andrew Hall adapted The Mill on the Floss, The History of Mr. Polly, Dombey and Son, The Invisible Man, and my favourite from 1984, The Prisoner of Zender, which was a really good series and very much like and felt inspired by the androids of Tara from Doctor Who. But at the point of doing Secret Army, he was fairly early in his career. It was before those big productions. And he had done things like Public Eye, New Scotland Yard, Dial M for Murder, and a, a series of plays called Handle with Care, which featured none other than Lala Ward. have to get those Doctor Who references in. So that's James Andrew Hall. So he was 37 at this point, which, I don't know, at my point that seems young. To you, it seems old. <laughs> I mean, I'm only yeah. a year out, so... <laughs> Why aren't you writing Secret Army for television, AJ? That's my question. I know. It does make you think, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. I always think this. And then sometimes you get people in their 20s who are achieving direction, directing credits, and I'm like, this isn't fair. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. James Andrew Hall, I think, is still with us and would be in his late 80s. So, where do we want to start with Second Chance? How many people watched it do we know? Oh yeah, 7.8 million. So because of the the riot that was Child's Play, 1.4 extra people, 1.4 extra people, 1.4 million extra people <laughs> tuned in to watch Second Chance. So Andy, this is an episode I feel like we've hyped up a little bit because we've, well, you, you have always said that this is for you where Secret Army begins proper discuss. And I was thinking that when I was watching it, I was thinking this is a bit dangerous because I've hyped this up so much. I love it. And I wasn't so much thinking about the podcast. I was more thinking at home. I was thinking about Ryan thinking, well, that was not great. So I was kind of nervous. And I think he really enjoyed it, as we'll hear. But... I think it's one of those episodes that it gives you clues to how Secret Army is going to be. So if you know what Secret Army is going to become, looking back at it, it's it's even richer than it first appears, I think, because it gives you so many beats, so much information about the characters that is on point. And I think that's to do with the writing, it's to do with the direction, but it's mainly to do with the characters starting to feel comfortable with who they are and what their roles are. Not all of them, I would say but um, a lot of them. Uh, and it's just such a good story. It's it's a proper, properly plotted thing. I agree. And um, it's one of my favourites from the first series. I really enjoyed this episode. So the first thing I want to touch on was, I'd already mentioned that Paul Annette had film experience, but it's something new is given here. I know we've got Victor's Fratellis very European feel earlier in the series, but here we have something that it feels filmic in a different way in a sort of, and maybe, I don't know whether it's a more British way, but it certainly feels filmic when we have Finch under the bridge and the the light cascading down and the lens flare, which is allowed to happen. The way that there's the pan down, it all feels just beautifully lit. Care has been taken to make this feel something a bit more epic. And I really appreciated that effort. It's such a beautiful opening scene I really really like it and it really brings your attention to kind of oh you know what's happened and what's going on and 
Can I ask you though, do, do you get stressed about the milk? Because I get stressed about the milk because I kind of like all that milk that's been wasted and I know it, I shouldn't care about it. But I'm just like, it, I suppose it's meant to underline how it, how completely exhausted he is. Yeah. And he's just, it's just brilliant the way he laps it up in the way he does. But it's just, I don't know. <laughs> he could have consumed it in a more efficient manner. Definitely, but that's the point, isn't it? That he can't. Now, a bone of contention between us so early on in the episode. I think we disagree about something here, which is interesting. <laughs> so in my notes for the episode, he is beautifully northern. And I love it when he sings, says things like, oh, bloody hell, when he, when he sees himself in the mirror and he's obviously not doing, th- doing well. But you had problems with his northern accent, didn't you? No, I, I think my point was, was the opposite. Oh. In that when I watch classic telly, it does feel a bit, like bias in its accent preference to the point where oh, it can just feel yeah. like a bit of an F you to people from the north. Like uh-huh. we won't have any regional dialects. It's all gotta be, you know, RP or whatever. Yeah. And a lot of the time if you have a villain or a character who isn't very pleasant, then regional accents will be allowed <laughs> to be used. See see survivors. Survivors is the best example of that. Yeah. All of the characters who are bad wrongans or thick are all northern yes and so um to me it just felt like this is one of the few times that you do hear a northern accent in secret army and because of those like limited <laughs> times it's it just struck me that it's like oh you've got the one that's doesn't want to be in the war and that could be you could you could see his story in different ways but could be argued that he's yeah. being selfish or cowardly i'm not saying that mm. he is i'm just saying it yeah some people might interpret that that so it was just a bit like fine fine classic bbc fine (laughs) (laughs) okay i get it i understand yeah i see the problem now that you've illuminated it for me and reminded me of the 70s bias i patted myself on the back because i'd forgotten when he said he was the rear gunner eric finch the rear gunner it's like it's obvious from his size that he was the rear gunner and i just think that was good casting that it was obvious that that's the only role he could have had in that team um, the smaller guys did the the rear gunning stuff at the back, and mm. yeah, that just just made sense. And just to um, add in a bit of context for that, because mm. this is stuff that I would not have known before watching Secret Army, is that the bit where the rear gunner sits is so small that even their parachute can't be in the capsule part with them. Mm. So that's mm. why, just to add to Andy's point, because that's all stuff I didn't know. I've learned so much from this show. Whoa! <laughs> so. Um, I've got lots more to say about Eric, but we'll probably move on to that later on. Okay. What else struck you about this episode? I thought it was lovely to see Monique's flat. Yeah, and it's, but it's the only time we see it, isn't it? I think so. So much so that I didn't ever remember going to Monique's flat. If someone had said, did we ever see Monique's flat, I would have said no. So, yeah. Which is a shame, because it's, it's nice to see that part of her life. And it's nice to see that it's one room, as you'd expect it to be. Obviously with a, a bathroom off the side, but it's just one room. It's cosy, but it's basic. And it just re-emphasises that she's the mistress and her role of always waiting for him. And she's got off she's got off duty. And yeah, Albert finally turns up. Although it does have shades of sort of um Bergerac and other police dramas of the time, which kind of used to really annoy me when there was a there's a character, oh I'm always so busy and and like <laughs> Like the woman always like, oh, come back, Jim, 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 come back. And it's like, oh, no, I've had a call. I have to go and investigate a, a murder. And it's just like, it's that sort of 
stereotypical trope of the woman having to bend to the man because of his unavailability. Yeah. yeah. Just as a complete sidetrack to the main discussion of this episode, it's interesting to compare the fact that Natalie has a whole flat and Monique has a room. Okay. And so that difference makes me think that Natalie's family might have more money in that she just seems to have a whole flat to herself on a waitress's wage, which we know Albert doesn't pay very much, as it's said in this episode. <laughs> yes, I don't know about that. Maybe Natalie's managed to siphon off some money from working in Lifeline. Yeah, maybe that's where it went. Maybe Albert wasn't really hiding the other money and Natalie was investing it in property. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's in series three. So I know, I'm getting way ahead of myself. No, but I know, but it's, it's an important point to make. But I think maybe Natalie's a bit clever with money. Maybe she's come across the money along the way. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All things to ponder about over the next few seasons as we go down the line. But talking of Natalie and her family, that was something that I'd never picked up on before, is that Aunt Lena isn't really her aunt. No. And this is interesting because, well, for me, because I come at it from the newer, newer fan perspective. So to me, that was really clear as I watched through the episodes. And I was always struck by the fact that everyone called, like referred to her, referred to those characters as if they were her aunt and uncle. And I was like, oh, but then, but they're not. I think they forget that in the series. I think they do. But, um, but it's very clear here that it's one of her mother's friends that she used to gad about with. Oh, she sounds nice. Who is she? Friend of my mother's from Amsterdam. They went to school together. And they used to go around like sisters in those days. Married? Well, you know, we've never been quite sure that it didn't matter much. To some it does. Yeah, and I really like that. It was just really nice detail and a really nice touch. That conversation yeah. between Natalie and Monique being like, you know, oh, you know, they're not really, they're my mum's friends. and Yeah. We've never been yeah. quite sure if they're married. And they yes. were like sisters in those days. And it was just really nice. I really liked it. It was. And added to that, I'd also completely forgotten the fact whether they married or not, but also the fact that his real name is Hans-Josef Fassler. So, obviously, he he isn't Dutch, he's German. So even in the episode description, a Dutch bargee, well, he's actually... He's not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know? So... All right, let's re-record this... our intro again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start again! But yeah, it's just this layer upon layer of lie here. <laughs> Lies! But I suppose he is called Hans, though, isn't he? Hans, yeah, so fast though, yes, so he still hands. Speaking of which, I really liked these characters, Hans and Lena, and I really liked their scenes in this episode, and I really like that they carry on appearing in Secret Army. Yeah, they absolutely do. And I think Hans has got such a, an intensity, a strength, and he is warm, but also slightly dangerous. And... And that's partly because you know he's a German, but also it's about him as an actor, his character as well, as, you know, in, in real life, I guess. So there's lots more on both Gunnar Moller, who played Hans, and Marianne Stone, who played Lena, in My Secret Army book. But just to cover some, some key things, Gunnar Moller was born in Berlin in 1928 and actually was a member of the Hitler Youth when he was a young boy in, in Berlin. And then... He went on with in the German film industry, and yeah, he was very popular with the German going German cinema going audience. He had big roles in films like 
Heidelberger Romance and Igden of and Piroska, which was considered to be his greatest success. Probably said that terribly, sorry. He carried on acting in the 60s. He also even played Adolf Hitler in two films directed by Otaka Vavra. And the first time I ever saw him was when he played Carl Brown in The Odessa File in 1974. I love that film. So Marianne Stone, huge number of credits. She made her last film in 85. There's rumoured to have more film credits to her name than any other British actress. Wow. But one of her most prominent roles in the 60s was as Vivian Darkbloom in Lolita in 1962. And by the time of the decade that Secret Army was made, she was making appearances in Bless This House, Public Eye, Seven Faces of Women, Woman even, Crown Court. And she was also, crucially, in Little Lord Fauntleroy, which was a TV series directed by Paul Annette. And that's how she got the part in Secret Army. She might have been in a, The Balance of Nature with Juliet Hammond and Hetty Baines, which was directed by Paul Annette. Oh, what was that? It was part of um, a series of maybe four commissioned plays uh, in the 1980s that are like an hour long t TV movies. Oh. I can't find the balance of nature anywhere. Uh, further made difficult to track down by the fact that it's a common phrase. So if you search for it, you'll just get oh, like things on evolution oh. and really annoying things like that. You know, where yeah. you're like, no, I don't want those things. But I haven't been able to track it down. Mm -hmm. So the thing about Gunnar Moller, which I think it's to do with what I know what happened um, in his life after Secret Army, that it makes me look back on the episodes now and his performance in a different way. Sometimes I feel he has a great intensity and an almost danger to him. And I think it is there in the performance if you didn't know. But if you do know, um, after Secret Army, he was convicted of manslaughter of his his wife which was horrendous tragic terrible incident and um yeah that's something that that weighs heavy if you know that um when you're watching the series but i only mention it in terms of his performance not not to be a salacious gossip monger but um i know it's hard for the cast and crew to to discover this and and i just think it's important to mention the his wife's name here which was bridget rao Yes, important, yeah. And Marianne Stone, you have some... Connections, some connections. Yeah, so um, when I was um, just Googling Marianne Stone and what she had been in and things, I just learnt that her daughter was a radio host called Cara Noble. Some people might remember that she became well-known in the late 90s for selling a picture, a topless picture of... Sophie, Countess of Wessex, to the sun and timed it three weeks before the wedding and made a lot of money from it and was then blacklisted, lost her job and was blacklisted from radio stations for a long time. So Wow, gosh. Interesting. Uh, what pops up? The internet is not, is not a kind place, is it? No, it really isn't. And there's part of you that just wants to disconnect the actor from the performance and from the series often with these things. I have the same um, feeling on a, on a more personal level. It's when an actor doesn't treat me well <laughs> on a series and I'm kind of like, now I feel differently about their character and you just can't disconnect them fully in that way. I would love to hear what you think about Lisa and Curtis in this episode. <laughs> I think both of us are having the same experience when it comes to Curtis. We, we're so infuriated by him yeah. and we don't really understand why he's there. He serves no purpose in the narrative 
other than to be really annoying and to be really horribly male in, in the worst ways. In this episode, Lisa is so furious and it's so easy to be empathetic for her that she, she even argues against something she knows to be right because she's just so annoyed with him taking over and being bossy. And of course, there's also a horrible buddies thing going on between Curtis and Albert as well. There's one point where Albert raises his eyes um, when Lisa's talking. So oh, here we go. And it's like, no, 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 no. She started this line, mate. She knows what she's doing. She may be a woman, but she's got more than both of you put together. I know Albert's a strong person, but it was her brainchild, the line, as it was in real life with Didi André de Jean. I think it's an unfortunate weakness of Secret Army that her strength doesn't always shine free. Yeah, and I think it's to do with the production team and they can't quite decide who is the lead of the show. They know that Bernard Hepton is the most expensive actor, they know the historical evidence and the historical narrative should have Lisa as number one, but they're not, they don't quite follow through on that. And I think the treatment of Jan Francis later in the series underlines this problem. And I think it's also to do with Jan Francis as an actor, who I think has t- at times is really good. At other times, I think her strength is more to comedy. And I do think it's not the best fit for her as a dramatic role. So there's that coming into it as well. Mm. I think with hindsight for me, I was struck by Lisa being more assertive in this episode than I remembered her character being in general. Right. But I was also more struck by how much more annoying Curtis was than I remembered him <gasps> to be. Honestly. In general. And then, and then when he's like putting a coat on and stuff, again, um, I'll just be repeating points I've made before, but... Um, <laughs> In my notes, I always write him down as knobhead Curtis. <laughs> and just, just you know, to make it clear, it's nothing against the actor. I think his performances are good. It's it's just my beef with a sexist character at this point. Yeah. Which I, I think it's interesting because I think I've developed as a person because this stuff did not annoy me as much as it does now. So I've, I see the change in me. And my, I've got more gender awareness than I had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm more furious than before. And I'm not just doing that to, as a suck up to you. <laughs> it's just <laughs> genuinely the fury. I've got my man training notes here and I'm going to just tick that box. <laughs> tick. Patronising actions 101. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just, I'm just teasing. But that's good. And I think you've, you've reached a level of awareness there that many men fail to reach in their entire lifetimes. Yeah. But what really annoys me now, and the big problem with Second Chance for me now, which I'd never had watching it before, so you always learn something new when you watch it, is the fact that Lisa just lies down and plays dead at the end of the episode. Oh, I would have done that too. No, she should have been absolutely furious. and say, this is exactly what I'm talking about. When Mm. my orders are not followed, you need to talk to me first. It was the right decision, but you should have talked to me. I run the line. Yeah. Yeah, this is what I mean about her her strengths not coming through is she's she's so passive yeah it's it's like she's not in control of the line at all at times i think perhaps unfortunate staging in that because she sat away from the wedding party yeah it doesn't really look like she was invited because she's on the other table but also <laughs> she's just she's not part of the wedding party she's not chatting to the other guests She's, she's just sat the there like a judge, almost, just like, you know, watching from the table. Yes. And then just, it, there's lots of close-ups of her kind of raising her eyebrow, like, oh, is something bad about to happen? Oh, what are my colleagues doing? And it, it, it just adds to this 
passiveness that's really strange about her character. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that the men on wedding party are like, who's she? Yeah. Did you invite her? <laughs> Lisa just wanted to pretend she's got more friends to Dr. Kelderman's. Like, I've been invited <laughs> to the wedding. Now, talking of Dr. Kelderman's, um, Lisa's visit to Dr. Kelderman's is very strange in this episode where she has this really fun, flirty, sexy thing going on with Alan the Evader, who's a complete turd. <laughs> <laughs> I've been here for ages. People are risking their lives to help you. I know, and he's kind of like, oh, I'm a bit fed up. Are you? Are you? God, I was furious with him. But, um, but I think the purpose of this scene is to show, number one, Evaders were knobs. Number two, to show that Lisa can be all fun and flighty when she's actually hiding something big and she has to do that all the time so it's showing the strength of lisa's character i think that's what it's there for yeah i would say that it's also there because of the 70s is the woman has to be sexy and flirty so i think there is an element of the time that's coming into that there but um i love that dr kelderman immediately knows because of how she behaves that she as soon as the evader goes out the door he says what's up he knows there's a problem and I think that's that's really good writing. Yeah. I nearly put that in my intro as, you know, and I'm AJ and I... And then I was like, something about a foot massage. And then I was like, no, I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have in the Dr. Kelderman surgery scene, final proof that no one knows what to call the Condide. <laughs> because it's called the restaurant and Cafe Condide in one scene. But what I would say, and I will go to my grave, I will die on this hill... <laughs> That the restaurant in series two is called Le Condide. It's never Cafe Condide. Okay. What else are your thoughts on Second Chance? I have many more to share, but I think it's I've hogged, hogged the time so far. Uh, we haven't discussed the Germans outside of the Condide yet. So would you like to share your thoughts on Kessler in this episode? Yeah. So I think Kessler is compensating here because I think he's been away Something's, he's been doing something and then he's annoyed that Brandt has seen this report first. Well, we, we thought he was away in the last episode because the other guy comes in and gives Brandt the account yes. from the American invader. Yeah. And we were like, well, where's Kessler? <laughs> so that kind of fits. It does, doesn't it? So I think he's actually playing catch up and he can never be seen to be failing. I think he's such a perfectionist. He's so ambitious within the Reich. You know, he wants to be up there with the Fuhrer ultimately. And... I think that his fury is about, ah, I've, this, this has got past me because I've not been here. And I think he gets off on bullying Rennert. I think he really, really gets off on it in a way that I think is almost, I wouldn't say it's bordering on sexual, but he, he, there's an excitement that it gets him going to, to do that, I think. Am I taking that too far or do you see that? Yeah, I, um, I, can, I can see that. Yeah. Also, we get Kester's great hand-washing debut. Hurrah! Round of applause. And um, do you want to add some more context for listeners who might not know? So Clifford Rose always loved any scene in which Kessler got to wash his hands because he felt it was a really good way of showing Kessler dealing with the, the situations he was dealing with in his own character and the darker stuff. And he particularly goes to wash his hands when he's just done something bad. And 
he always attributes it to Tristan de Vere Cole. He's oh, Tristan de Vere Cole is the director who always got me to to wash my hands, and I love that. But in fact, it's it's not true. <laughs> it just sounds so funny. It's just early on he starts washing his hands, and I thought, oh yeah, that's the thing. Because actors love a bit of business, don't they? Where they can do something, and that's something which he always loved doing. So when you're seeing Kessler yeah. washing his hands, Clifford's really happy every time. <laughs> well, I think it's one of the hardest things to do is when you either don't have the main dialogue in the scene or you're just reacting and watching a scene but you're in shot yeah so i can i can totally see why actors are like i've got a prop to hold i've got a thing to do yeah you're listening to down the line a secret army podcast i have a point i would like to bring up yes which we haven't touched upon yet so how lifeline treats finch he finch is just expendable to them he's like well he wanted to be out the war so we're happy to use him as a means to an end for this. And it's so sinister when they're looking in the mirror and Curtis is like, don't bother to shave. Yeah. Ugh, that gave me chills. Absolutely. It's like Curtis in his mind is already like, yeah, I know what we're going to do with this guy. And it's really shocking. And then at the end as well, the conversation or the shock of some of the lifeline. I don't want to say staff. <laughs> some of the lifeline Yeah. people. <laughs> I can't find the word I'm looking for. Um, it's, it's less like, oh, we've just killed this poor soldier right on the doorstep of the Candide. And it's more like, people will think we're collaborators. <laughs> yeah. So it's just really interesting. So I love I love the fact that Lifeline is presented in this episode as the opposite of the saviours. And there's uh, it's a very clever trick that Secret Army pulls again and again. And it still always feels like a good trick because ostensibly they're good people. They're trying to bring an end to the war. They're trying to get evaders back so they can come over and fly again. But um, sometimes, out of um, expediency, they have to do this sort of thing. And it's so neat that they choose to kill off Finch in order to prove that they're loyal, that they are collaborators, and that they should stop watching the Condide if they are watching the Condide. And I love all of that. It's something I, I, I really think is a strength of Secret Army. But I can't help but feel so much empathy and sympathy for for finch and i'm very much on monique's side of the argument but even though as you've just pointed out she's more worried about collaboration than the fact that he's dead and again this will come up time and time again but just at the how good secret army is at getting you to think about these kind of moral dilemmas and think about these characters what would you do in that situation if you were finch you know is is has he got a valid point or would people see he's running from his duty? And, you know, those kinds of questions. I admire that Secret Army gets the audience to think about them so well. Uh, what, I, what I would say about Finch is he actually is someone who thought about himself a lot at a time when you're not allowed to think about yourself. During wartime, you're not allowed to put your character, your ambitions, your hopes first. And I think that's a really interesting thing to explore in this episode because... Mm. In war, you're meant to put those things second or f further behind than that even. But he has an, had an active conversation with his wife, um, Nancy, and said, look, this is how we're going to do it. Do you agree? And she said, yeah, we'll do this. And we'll meet in Scotland after the war, after the baby, and it'll be all fine. And he'll come back as, and he'll, you know, he'll come back as Eric Finch, the dad, not the rear gunner. He's not defined by his, his wartime role. And I think it's just so, it's so interesting that he has, he has decided, I'm not going to be one of the masses who just goes and gets slaughtered. And actually, I am going to put my fatherhood above all that. And I think it's so well done that he has a self-importance. And I find that really interesting that he has actually garnered that level of self-importance, despite the world around him 
and despite only being only being a rear gunner and yet you see him as flawed well, I certainly did anyway I still see him as someone who is flawed for thinking himself so important at this time and oh, well, I'll just get to Switzerland they must help me to get there why should they help you yeah and I think actually um one thing that I love about Secret Army is it challenges my own assumptions about things because so much of what is depicted of war is glorified or you know certain people's roles are viewed in a certain way and so it challenged me because I was watching that initially and thinking things about Finch like oh well that's not the right attitude to have in the war you've got to be will it happy to fight for your country and you know do your bit and yeah. jolly ho <laughs> and so it made me realize my own underlying assumptions and that's why secret army makes me a better person <laughs> does doesn't it i think we should mention paul copley such a brilliant actor it was i was funny to see that um alex wilcock remembered him most as egg's father in the series this life the series about lawyers in london and that's how I remembered him as well. But he's done so many other things. He was the narrator for How Clean Is Your House for, for many years. And I remember hearing his voice all the time. And I was thinking, that's, that's Rhea Gunner Finch right there. Is that the TV show that had um, the two women with the who like became... Was it like Aggie and Kim or something? Yeah, like Kim that? and Aggie. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Oh, wow. That's such an interesting <laughs> connection. And then that made me think he was also the narrator of Come Down With Me. But he's not. It's someone with a very similar voice. Oh, okay. But I've always thought he was come down with me as well, but he's not. Ah, interesting, <laughs> interesting. But, um, yeah, he's had so many other credits to his, his name, but I think this is one of my favourite performances I've seen Paul Copley do, um, give, rather. Just because he manages to invest the empathy and the sympathy, but also at the same time the flaw, I think he achieves all of those things. One scene I particularly wanted to talk about um, was when Lena is having that conversation with, with Finch, and I love the moment when he says, ah, you're very like my mum. And he's kind of like saying, yeah, I've been under the under the yoke here. And I just love the fact that he that's a lovely character point that he's he's had to deal with this domineering mum as well. And he's not only breaking out from other people, he's breaking out from his mum and making decisions for himself. And I think that's really interesting. And I'm thinking of a very typical strong northern mum, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was a lovely little detail. Anyway. I think we've we've kind of forgot to mention one of the main points really, which was the the fact that you've got Finch and Hans. Of together. course, we, let, let's actually talk about the key point of the episode. In your show notes, um, you made such a great point, which is by bringing the characters of Finch and Hans together, it just allows for some fantastic exploration. So Finch, for example, can look forward to Hans and see if he gets out of the war, that's a life that he could be living. And then you get to explore how Hans's life has kind of always been, you know, living a lie or always being on the run and having that thing in your past always with you. Yeah. It's a really nice theme for the episode. Yeah. And I guess it's a question that never came to my mind until I wrote the show notes was, is it contrived that a defector immediately meets a defector? Is that something that is kind of too nice and simple? But I think if you didn't have it, you wouldn't be able to explore all of this, like this life of running and what it's done to Hans and Lena and their relationship. And I think you're meant to feel that Lena is is all careworn because she spent her life worrying about Hans and being there for him and that he's found it a difficult road. And the young feel like they have it all sewn up. And I think Lena's saying it's not going to be as easy as you think to defect and you'll be running all your life and all that sort of stuff. But um, clearly Hans is a troubled character. And it's just lovely that by meeting Finch, he gets to explore 
what he did, how it makes him feel now, and also rooting for him in the justification of everything he did through him. So to have Lifeline rip that away from him is big. He's never going to forgive Lifeline for this because... I hadn't considered that, but you're right. It sets up storylines to come. Yeah. And I think it's also the first example of how Secret Army shows how, whether you want it to or not, the war is going to keep coming in and impacting your life or yeah. having really far-fetching consequences. And it seems to particularly happen to Hans and Lena a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're just trying to have a nice day on the barge and in comes Lifeline crashing in. Yeah. And they've really messed everything up. But yeah, so it's kind of the first incidence of that theme as well, that yeah. you can't escape the war. And in some cases, even for just an afternoon, you know, like when Natalie and Francois are coming on the boat and, you know, Lena's talking about how they look serious. It's all, go- you know, they're going to have a nice tea together. Nope. <laughs> comes lifeline. <laughs> Not allowed. Not allowed. Yeah. What's interesting is viewing it from the lens of Ryan, who, just to remind listeners, is your partner who is watching Secret Army and giving his reactions to the show. It's another episode that introduces more new characters. And as we have listened to Ryan's reactions, one of the things that he's struggled with is which characters are which, (laughs) remembering people's names. And I was just... I'd never watched this episode through that lens before, but I was like, okay, you know, we've said this for all of the other episodes. We just want to focus on the regulars and find out more about them. And then still episode five is like, here's an aunt and an uncle, an honorary (laughs) one, an honorary set of aunt and uncle. And um, yeah, we're going to have a whole episode dedicated to this new character's backstory of deserting World War One. Yeah. But I can forgive it because it's so well written. Do you want to hear what Ryan thought? Yes. Okay, let's go for it. Okay, so we just watched Second Chance. What did you make of it, Ryan? I thought it was good. Yeah, there was lots of really interesting little kind of side bits in there that, were, that gave it lots of flavour. Mm. But my biggest takeaway was that I agree with Natalie. Oh, really? Yeah, at the end. And I think maybe everyone else has got sort of second motives almost to like... What I'm trying to say is I think Natalie's got the purest intentions in that because she's like, I understand the bigger picture of it all. Mm. We're doing this. This person wasn't. We needed this to solve the other things. Yeah. Whereas everyone else is quite emotional about it. But it's like, well... Their skins were on the line and this person didn't want to be part of it anymore. I know it's a bit brutal, but at the same time, it's like, well, there's it's much bigger picture. Okay. Does that make me heartless? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little surprised. <laughs> but then I understand as well because it makes perfect sense that they need to pitch themselves as collaborators so that they can carry on with the work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else? I like the use of the word bitch. That was like, ooh. Yeah, that was like, that, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Kester was back briefly. Yes, and he's got a power struggle going on. Mm-hmm. But no Brandt this episode. Maybe he's maybe he's still for facts. I know these are... I like the fact that he's all arsy that someone got to read his report first, but he didn't read his report until he's got his lunch and sat... <laughs> So I must ask you about the kind of the power struggle, the um, the Lisa Curtis Albert. Oh yeah, at the top of the line. What do you think about that? I I hate Curtis. (laughs) I hate Curtis more than I hate Kessler. So he's my least favorite in the show at the minute. I think. And this was the first episode to introduce Hans and Lena, who come back. Oh okay. Yes, they're recurring characters, irregularly recurring, but they do come back. 
What did you make for them? And now that you've said that, I can see that because that's quite a fleshed out little mm. self-contained unit. Mm. But yeah, it was good. So overall, good episode. Yeah. 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 Cool. Until next time. Okay, so that was it. <laughs> well, he definitely sounds less tired than previous okay. uh, Ryan's reaction segments. Good. And yeah, that was good to hear his thoughts. Yeah. Can I comment upon two silly things that just really were important to me in the episode? <laughs> in terms of they were so important I wrote notes. And one is we must talk about Natalie's brown check coat of death, which is just awful. And it's, I hope it was burned at some point. In later seasons, I absolutely adore her fashion sense. Yeah. In this episode, brown upon brown, and then the hats, and it's, yeah. It doesn't work, does it? She's not got a look side yet. No. But that's fine. She's going to grow into a, a style power icon. Exactly. <laughs> and then we just have Lisa's poodle hair this episode. I mean, yeah. it's just like... I didn't notice it, but as soon as I saw it in the notes, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really seeing it now. I just see this little poodle strutting along, running lifeline, and I was like, oh, my God. It's the way it goes, do-do-do, and the do-do-do, you can't see that, but yeah. <laughs> no, I'd like you to describe that for the listeners, please. So, piled up on her head, curly, curly, curly up here, and then down here as well, like poodle ears. Bless her, but also a fashion no-no. We've touched upon but haven't talked a lot about everyone's reactions at the end. I think the thing that shocked me was that Natalie, Natalie gives the gun to the soldier. She, I mean, she's almost like one step from running outside and shooting him. <laughs> she's just like grabs the gun, hands it to, you know, out the door you go. Like, she's really... And isn't it beautiful that she hands it to rice pudding? Yes. <laughs> That's not missed on me. Yes. I feel like we need to explain who rice pudding is and why we're... <laughs> Yeah, in the episode, they have that moment where she's teaching a soldier, an officer, how to say rice pudding. And we've now just given him that as a character name because I don't know that he has one. Or if he does, we might not find it out until bait. But I think rice pudding is played by the actor Al Lampert. Okay, there we go. Uh, but a character name? German soldier. <laughs> German soldier. Pudding. No. Pudding. But he does come back in another James Andrew Hall episode. Ah. He's in bait and he has a scene with Hetty Baines' character, Yvonne, who we also need to talk about this episode. <gasps> we must talk about Yvonne. Let's talk about Yvonne. The, by the way, the re- I love Yvonne. Oh, no, go on. The reason... Oh, the reason why I haven't talked about any of the end stuff yet is because it's the things I love the most in the episode, so it's kind of like... Oh, you're saving it. Yeah, I was saving it. But yeah, let's talk about Yvonne. Uh, she's bloody brilliant, and I love her. I know. I love how she carries up out of business, and she's always got her lips pursed, ready to say some sort of barb or cutting comment, and she's just there for it all the time. And she's so... Is the word truculent? I don't know, but she's she's great. What's really interesting about Yvonne is she could come across as being less intelligent as she is and a bit daydreamy and not observant. Actually, she's really sharp. And so... Yeah, she knows what's going on. She knows everything. You know, she probably does know exactly where everything goes on the table. She just doesn't care and she doesn't yeah. need to do each job to its best. Yeah, because why, sh why should she? She's there for herself. She's going to get the most out of the war she can. There's so much more about 
Yvonne that is she's such a missed opportunity but also a glorious addition yeah I mean it's fantastic that Paul Annette thought we're going to have Hetty Baines in this they were friends basically Paul Annette got her in and um, that's why she's in his episodes she just adds a quality. She adds the, the warring faction with Monique, which is fantastic. But there was an opportunity to go so much further with it and actually have a character who was so much out for herself and openly collaborating, a more of a danger to the line than she actually becomes during the series. I think she's, she's a fascinating addition. I want to check now, um, makes for gripping podcast listening, Weather Bait was directed by Paul Annette. Oh, but it's not. It's a Victor's episode. Okay. Interesting. So I know when she comes back in Weekend, that's definitely Paul Annette written and directed. Yes. yes. I really love scenes between Yvonne and Monique because what a comedy duo. I love their match of wits, their battle of wits, and I could watch it all day. Yeah. I just want more of it. More, more. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So let's get to the man on wedding party in a bit more detail. We've, we've, we've danced around it. We've talked about different elements. I just wanted to get to the point at which there's the immediate aftermath of Finch being shot. I just think the scripting here is on point. I think we learn so much about who I think are the trio, the holy trinity of Secret Army, Monique, Albert and Natalie. They are the key voices in this moment. And I'm so pleased they are. And it's the first time where it feels like Secret Army proper. I keep saying that about Second Chance, but it is for me in that Monique says, my God, did you see the way those people stared at you? And Albert's saying, I know what we're doing. I thought you did. What do you want? Is this real help we're prepared to give or just a rude gesture that comes as, that earns us a sly pat on the back? Brilliant scripting. It just sums it up. Mm-hmm. And then Natalie, I don't give a damn for his reasons. I mean, you find out about all of them and they're, that dance in this scene is so clever and brilliantly put together. Anyway, that's my thought. And I, I don't have anything to add to that other than to wholeheartedly agree, unfortunately, which makes for a boring conversation. But, uh, <laughs> and it's I, I know you've said that Curtis, of course, is not in that holy trinity of secret army characters, but I kind of enjoy that he's got that reaction as well. Like, I do actually feel really bothered by this. I really like, again, just a one-track record, the performances between Angela Richards and Bernard Hepton were so great. But I love the bit where um, Albert takes the, goes to take the glass of wine and she just snatches it back like, get off my wine. Yeah, get off it. <laughs> this will not go well for you. Don't take alcohol from Monique. <laughs> <laughs> Do not interfere with me in this moment. I'm in my feelings here. Yeah. This is not going to go well. Yeah, exactly. How do you think it bodes for... Natalie and Monique are so close in later seasons, but here they've got really opposite views of the situation. Yeah. That's not a question, it's just a thought. I think that Natalie has to come into her emotions a bit more, and I think it's about her being younger here and not really having experienced as much. And when she has loved and lost, as she will, I think she gets into a different territory in how she feels about the war and what's going on. Mm. And I think she's kind of got a sort of a zealous idealism at this point, which is unchallenged. Yes. Yeah. So I think she's got a strength through naivety almost. Na- the naivety of that pure motive, which Ryan referred to. And I think it's actually misplaced because nothing's ever as straightforward as that. And you have to think about the value of life. And, the, you know, it's, you can't put it to one side as, as neatly as that. But I would say... 
What a brilliant, neat plotting device that Finch's death gives Lifeline their continued freedom of operation. I just love that as a beat. It's just, yeah. of course, it's so clever. And that's why I really love this episode, because you've got a strong episode, and then at the end it just goes up into just secret army perfection. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And of course, we haven't talked about it enough. We will talk about it a bit more. Finally, Angela Richards gets to sing, and Memories Come Gently is just going to be a staple of the series, and it's just brilliant. Her songs are always a commentary on what's going on. You can bring out of them what you want. It's later on, it will have a, a different meaning, but we'll get into that. Yeah, so before we get on to her composing and her singing, shall I do a quick wrap up of like my minor points about the episode? Yes. And then we'll kind of move on to a different topic. This is like AJ's minor points of the episode. <laughs> Excellent, love it. <laughs> it's a segment. Yeah, I know, we've got its own theme tune now. One thing that I struggle with with Secret Army sometimes is that there's shadows obscuring the actors' faces during key moments. And I felt like there was one here when Monique is sat on Albert's lap and just his face is in shadow and I just really want them to move the lighting. Yeah. (laughs) Another time that I really struggle with that is when you find out in Good Friday that the lifeline have taken 200 men down the line and then like Lisa's face is in shadow and I'm like, just move the lights, please. (laughs) But the worst example of all isn't even light on someone's face. Right. It's in the very last episode when they're all around celebrating what Lifeline's achieved and you can't see some people at all because they're blocked by other people. Makes me so mad. Makes me so mad. Oh, so angry. Anyway. As a frequent sling wearer, I uh, don't rate this airman's uh, sling setup. (laughs) I'm going to give it about one or two out of ten. But we have to use the Greg Preston scale of sling wearing, though, don't we, from Survivors? Because that's a bad sling in... in... In Survivors, yeah. The reason why it's a bad sling is it goes around the neck and not the back and shoulder. And it doesn't support the wrist, which is what is injured for Greg. <laughs> and so it just flops out of the sling. So he, But it provides more support than this. So he gets about a three. Okay. Why has her name forgotten? I've forgotten the name. The lovely old lady in Tenko. Joss Holbrook. Yes, she gets um, a much higher... I'd say she's about an eight on the sling-wearing scale. Joss Holbrook's an eight? Yeah. Good. Okay, good. It's good that we have this. Metric. I also enjoy that um, when writer and broadcaster Matthew Sweet has been doing a Secret Army watch, watch through and tweeting along, he calls the appearance of the chocolate Secret Army Toblerone and then calls it that every time Toblerone appears in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Does it appear regularly? I think it only appears once more, but I just enjoy that for Matthew it's named. Good. A secret army Toblerone. Okay, good. Good mention to Matthew's sweet. Hope he's listening. And I think I just uh, made a note. I feel like the women in secret army get manhandled a lot. And, and this is kind of like a, a first instance of Natalie just being shoved against a wall with an eye held to her throat. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So I'm just going to keep an eye out on how many times that happens. Yeah. Because I just feel like she's just grabbed and thrown around a lot. Yeah, I mean, it never gets to Perry levels in Doctor Who, does it? But it's still not good, and definitely because she's the ingenue character. Yeah. 
Um, some things that I really liked, I really liked the scene transitions. So we have um, and drinking milk in ways that we've discussed already. <laughs> Could be more efficient, but then that cuts to somebody drinking tea in a very civilised manner. Yes, good. As I have picked out before, that is a hallmark of Secret Army. They do that a lot. And then there's also the wine later on when um, Finch is killed, isn't there? There's the wine that... Is the wine spilled? Like, as his blood is spilled. I thought it was really interesting how Hans gets his new name from a gravestone. Ah. I think because I'm also going through a transition in my own life where that involves changing my name or trying out new names and yeah. exploring different names. Yeah. I just found it really interesting of like the symbolism of taking it from a gravestone and what, what does that symbolise? Is it yeah. like a sign that his previous life has had to kind of die and be buried, so to speak? Or is it kind of the idea of living on borrowed time because you've taken it from a gravestone and eventually it will have to die? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like it too. Yes. I didn't pick my name from a gravestone. And I feel better for not having done so. (laughs) (laughs) I am relieved to hear it. I I was watching it going, yeah, that's a really interesting way to choose your name. Glad I didn't do it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, One line that we haven't mentioned, and I just must say it out on the podcast, or you could play it in, is when Han says, "I I put my life in the palm of my hand and I give it to you. I just thought it was beautifully lyrical and it just emphasized how open Hans is to to Finch. Um, I mean, he's not originally, and actually that's something I really like, is that he actually plays up. He's like, oh, I'm a bad German, and you actually can't trust me at this point. He doesn't make him feel particularly comfortable to begin with, and I love that. But there's a point at which he's just completely open. He says, this is me. I'm giving you everything here. I put my life in the palm of my hand, and I give my life to you. I trust you, Finch. Not because you are British, but because we are comrades in adversity. In 1916, I I found Lena to help me. Today you have found Hans-Josef Hassler. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Finch actually turns them down. Even though he's done that, Finch goes with Lifeline, which of course is a huge mistake. But he should have really stuck with Hans and Lena, who I think Hans would have got him to Switzerland by hook or by crook. So I think it's interesting that such honesty and openness was rejected, ultimately. Good observation. I love that. I feel like we've we've had some really good discussions about this episode yeah. today. Um, and one final discussion I want to have is about Natalie's involvement in the final plot. I think that she didn't have any awareness of what Curtis was going to do. No, she looks a bit too shocked on the boat scene when she... she it looks like she realises. Yes, she's starting to realise. But I think it would have been more interesting for her character if, you know, she could have cooked up the plan. I just think she is wily enough and strong enough. I know she has a naivety, but her that pure motive we've talked about to protect the line at all costs, it would have been so good if they'd given a female character that strength at this point. It would have been a wonderful way into understanding about Natalie because she's she's so strong at the end of the episode. She could have been even stronger here and actually thought, well, actually, we've got an opportunity here, Curtis. Why does it have to come from Curtis, you know? It would have been better to come from within the line, mm. from someone who's actually risking their life every day rather than from someone who's just trying to take control of something he's got no part of. Mm. Anyway. I like imagining they could have been of Secret Army. You are listening to Down the Line. A Secret Army podcast. 
So let's touch upon the music in this episode. So Angela remembers putting the music together for Secret Army. It was kind of a slow build. It was an evolution. It wasn't something that was planned from the beginning, even though Angela was a prominent West End actress and had, you know, been nominated for Olivia Awards and all that sort of stuff. What she remembers is, I was always fiddling with bits of paper and music and writing lyrics down. After a time, she thought, I could write a song for the series that could be in keeping with the period setting and the atmosphere. She proposed the inclusion of a song that was very in the time, as she put it. And after she sang it to Jerry Glaster, he said, yeah, we should definitely include Memories Come Gently in the series. And eventually it slotted into Second Chance. So it was her actually bringing that into the series and actively suggesting. But I think Jerry decided, oh, we're not going to put any more... I think it's odd that they decide not to put any more music in for the rest of the series, actually, from her. Because I think it's such a high point of the episode. But um, later on, they obviously make it a, a huge feature of the series when there's the opp- opportunity for resident chanteurs in series two. It just makes sense for her to sing, and that just adds another level to the series. I think to the point at which Angela was like, oh, God, I've got to sing again this week. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, she loves to sing, but it was like another element of... Um, yeah. It also makes those scenes quite technical because you've got a lot of extras. You've got yes. the acting and the dialogue, and then she's also sometimes switching between singing and delivering dialogue. Yes. And she has to do then a lot of walking around and singing with the extras. <laughs> and like It just makes it really hard. Yes, I think it was so much harder than I realised it was. But I did want to just touch on two of the songs which are in the episode, which are played in, which Angela sings in series two. One is Je, Je suis seul ce soir. Which means I'm alone tonight. This was a song performed by Leo Morjean with lyrics by Rose, Rose Noel and Jean Casanova and music by Paul Dunant. It was recorded first in 1941 um, by a singer called Asia de Busny, but then by Leo Mojan on in 1941. And it was really popular at the time of the war. It's dead right that this piece is in there because it was about um, French women mourning for, yearning for the men who'd been taken away by the Germans, essentially. So that's what the song was specifically about when it was written. So it's being played at the right time in the right way in the context, which I like. The other song, which is, I think it's a bit of a rubbishy song, but <laughs> is Valentina, which is um, was a song that, which was popularised by entertainer, actor, singer, Maurice Chevalier, and was per- first performed in 1925. Hey, la now the thing that I wanted to bring up about Maurice Chevalier was that he had a famous love affair with the French songstress Miss Danguette. If you've ever seen the BBC drama Bluebell from 1986, fantastic drama with Carolyn Pickles. Never been released, never been repeated. I loved it. It's about... Do you know anything about Bluebell? I've never heard of it. Oh, God. So Bluebell is about a woman who is in a British dance troupe and then she's so good at dancing that she she joins the Folie Bergère in Paris. But then the war comes and she has a Jewish boyfriend and um, it's about everything that happens to her in wartime and it's very Secret Army vibes. 
It's brilliantly. Um, it's got a brilliant supporting role from Annie Lambert, who plays Enlightenment in Four to Doomsday and Doctor Who, and she's gorgeous in it as well. Getting your Doctor Who references in there again. I have to, but honestly, Bluebell is one of these lost series that I really want to see again. And one of the main characters in Bluebell is this evil, over-the-top songstress of yesteryear, Miss Danguette. And that's who, Maurice Chevalier, who popularised this song, that's who he had the big affair with. But by the time of Bluebell, she's kind of this elderly person who shouldn't really be on the stage anymore, and she's a complete evil diva. Anyway, not important. But um, Chevalier did perform Valentina in two movies, Innocence of Paris and Folie Bergère de Paris, which is the Folie Bergère, which is featured in Bluebell. Yeah, so that's a bit on the music from your music correspondent. <laughs> from your music correspondent, I love that. <laughs> Shall we find out what other people thought about the episode? Yes. So we had Mick John, P-N-E-F-C, no idea what that refers to. He said, brilliant episode, Finch the Downed Airman, played by Paul Copley, who was in A Bridge Too Far, and Corrie. Very sad ending in Secret Army for him. Yes, it was. Who else do we have? This is from at Jin underscore Carp. This lovely person on Twitter says, I always loved the badge setting and the sense of hope that came with it, of the possibility of escape and a new life. Typical Secret Army that this is ripped away. The security afforded by the badge and Hans and Lena has always stayed with me. Alex Wilcock has... Yeah, we referred to Alex earlier in the episode as if it was someone that, that everyone, everyone would know. And they, many listeners okay. will, but it is someone who we interact with on Twitter. <laughs> okay. So Alex Wilcock, at Alex Wilcock, said, Paul and direction is the best, isn't it? He loves those drops of water and a threatening splash of wine. So do mm-hmm. I. So do I. Several excellent directors, but he always makes me sit up and take notice. But is Natalie ever stronger than in her sheer blazing contempt here? It's all going to have consequences, but the biggest, spoiler, turns out to be Monique singing and not having much luck with a wedding, if Albert's got anything to do with it. Second Chance becomes the tensest episode so far, bringing the threat home. Sergeant on the run too, this time it's personal. I sympathise with each of Albert and Curtis, Hans and Eric, to me, Egg and Yvonne's dad, but won't get to see his kids this time. So that was from Alex Wilcock. David underscore Kitchen underscore, a regular contributor now along with Alex, which is fantastic. I remember watching this one for the first time and thinking, will the good guys actually win one eventually? (laughs) Adds to the feels that this isn't a normal TV series. Finch's attitude felt very realistic, but again, not what you'd normally get in a World War II drama. Agree, Dave, yes. And Alfred in WS said... I thought it was a good episode. It was a pretty shocking moment that Lifeline betrayed the airmen to the Germans as effectively a sacrifice to throw suspicion off them. Indeed, it was. Um, Yes, thank you to all of our contributors. I hope that was everyone. So, dear listeners, when this episode draws to a close, uh, you'll hear some more sound bites from other fans of Secret Army just talking about what they love and their memories of watching it. Uh, if you would like to um, get involved, please get in touch at Secret Army Pod on Twitter or secretarmypod at gmail.com. You can also use those contact details to give us feedback about the show, what you enjoyed or didn't enjoy about each episode, about each episode of the show or the podcast. We're open to it all. We are. And please give us a goddamn review. Give us five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Those will really help get people to find the show and to see that we kind of know what we're doing. (laughs) We kind of know what we're doing. (laughs) That's a quote. Pull out quote. They kind of know what they're doing. They kind of know what they're doing. (laughs) 
don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast we will see you next time when we go down the line when we take a look at episode six growing up which is the one with the child and the soldier i have been andy and i have been aj goodbye bye My name's Kate Garner and I'm a singer-songwriter and perform vintage songs and I'm very passionate about Secret Army. I think it's an amazing drama that everyone should know about. It's one of those pieces of TV, a piece of drama that you just never forget. It stays with you. I didn't know anything about it until it started running on Talking Pictures. I wanted to do a bit more research to find out more about it after I'd seen an episode and I kept hearing people, there was a buzz about it, you know, Secret Army, you've got to watch Secret Army. And I thought, yeah, I want to find out more about it. So we did, we went right back. We didn't tune in. We thought we've got to start from the beginning. And I just thought it was amazing in every way. My husband and I, my husband, Paul, he loves it too. And what we couldn't believe how script, production, casting, music, all the elements came together and you just couldn't fault it. And the cast was so strong. And you really shared in the anxiety of those scenes in the in the Candide. I think that's the thing that really grabbed me about it. You felt you were there. And there were just such fantastic stories. And you learned so much about that time because it was an angle that hadn't been covered before. So it made me really want to research more about that time and, and and I'm sure it was pretty accurate in its research. Jan Francis, who played Lisa Colbert, I thought her role was a, such a strong character and she played it so well. So she was one of the first that I'd seen on screen. But Albert, I loved his character and there was he was such a constant throughout it and he played it so well, so subtly. And then Angela... Richard's amazing, beautiful voice anyway, as well as a great actress. Love Monique always uh, because obviously being a musician and, and singer myself, it was always a treat to see her singing. It's not just fantastic drama, it's entertainment all round because you feel that you're at a cabaret show, don't you? This amazing cabaret show that's in this little place on the square in Belgium everyone watching this beautiful singer and it feels like you're part of the audience and that as well is is, that's that's a real craft to be able to do that and to make you feel part of it but it all my favorite scenes usually were in the Condé cafe especially in the first series when it was bar cafe I liked it best that setting I thought that really worked well her musical theatre background was all in there in her writing too because um, songs tell stories don't they in musicals Thank you for listening to Down the Line. Andy and AJ will be back with another episode in two weeks' time.